Well, the Gospel of Mark has uh, 16 chapters. We're in 14 today, and so we are getting close to the end of this book. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's talking openly about his death. It's the Passover week in this particular part of the narrative. As you know, he's crucified on a Friday, and so we are right at the door with our story today in chapter 14. I mean, the betrayal is in chapter 14, and so we are very close to, to the end, and Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal of Judas is, is really the next story up. Uh, however, the Lord led me to preach today a story that occurs just before the Last Supper, just before the betrayal in the garden. Uh, it's the story where a woman breaks a jar of very expensive perfume and anoints Jesus with it. And all the argumentation that happens as a result of this gesture. I recently had to replace the printer ink at my house. Um, I have a, it's not an impressive printer, it's just an HP OfficeJet 8600 series, okay? It can do all the basics that you need at a house. It's a residential, easy, not a big deal printer. And the time came, like it always does, to replace the ink cartridges. So Abby drops by an Office Max, picks up the black and white and the color multi-pack. It was over $100 for ink. You all been there before? If you've been there, let me, let me see it. All right, thank you so much. That feels a little better. And of course, I said some things in that moment that were expressing disapproval, things you just have to say in moments like that. Maybe you've said these things before. Things weren't this expensive when I was a kid. You said that line, right? You got to say that one. But then my favorite in a situation like this, I say it every time we change the ink. I could almost buy a new printer for that price, right? You've said that one before? Okay, you have to. It's contractual. You say those things. Uh, but you feel like a fool when you, pay, when you pay for ink that can fit in the palm of your hand. Have $100 for little cartridges that are that big. This caused me to look up other expensive liquids, perhaps to soothe my soul. Did you know that a gallon of insulin can go for $10,000? Now, I know you, don't, you probably can believe that if you're diabetic, but um, it's, I mean, you never need a gallon, but that's what it goes for. Ladies, what about the, perhaps the most uh, well-known perfume in the world, Chanel Number no. 5? You just want a gallon jug of it? Did you know you can get it for $26,000? You can get a gallon jug. I don't, how long would that even last you? Hopefully a lifetime. Need a gallon of King Cobra Venom? Well, you can get it for $153,000. And according to three separate shady-looking websites that I looked at for this research, many agree upon, at least the three agreed on the most expensive liquid in the world. Anybody want to take a guess? Just a wild guess? Maybe that's dangerous. Don't take a wild guess. <laughs> number one was scorpion venom at number one. Just think, somebody's got to sit there and take that little scorpion and just, how much do you even get? That's why it's that much. Here it is, $39 million for a gallon. $39 million. Now, we could argue whether or not these things are, are silly to ever buy for something like that, whether they're overpriced or whether they would be worth it to pay for something like that. But there's a lot that plays in to the value of something. 
the worth of something, isn't there? Some of you know firsthand the necessity of insulin. It's no joke when you need it, right? When you need it, you need it. If it was you who was bitten by the king cobra, you would be glad that someone took the time to put that cobra's mouth on top of that little jar. And you know the thing that they do with the fangs where they go over the side. You've seen it before. You'd be glad somebody did that. The same with the the scorpion venom. The values get more complicated when personal, you know, you were involved. Today's text will show us that this offering of worship given to Jesus by a woman named Mary may seem ridiculous on the surface, exorbitant. And you may even find yourself agreeing with those who criticize her in the story. But what Jesus indicates is that there is no gift too costly as long as it's poured out for Jesus, not even our lives. Perhaps the takeaway for you today will be as simple as this. Jesus is worth it. Whatever's on the other side of that blank, Jesus is worth it. So the message is this, pour out the perfume, break the bottle, give it all away while you have a chance on this side of eternity. Hold nothing back from God. Give him everything now while you have the time to do it. Let's pray before we look at this chapter. Lord, we ask your divine blessing and help this morning as we read your word. We know that it's an act of the Spirit to understand and apply your truth in our lives. And so, Lord, would you do that? Would you help us to see things prepared by me, Lord, but also applications unprepared by me as you speak to your people? Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and turn there, Mark 14.3. If you're not there, that's where we'll be, 14.3. This story is one of the few that appears in all four Gospels. It's primarily in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke gives it just a little hat tip and then moves on, but those other three are where the the main story is. Um, In the chronology of Holy Week, John's Gospel, I, I I would strongly suggest studying John's version of this story alongside Mark's, which is what we're doing today. So John's gospel places this event earlier in the week, closer to the triumphal entry. And if the reason why it seems is that he wants that story connected to the raising of Lazarus, because Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in both stories. Mark seems to place it more towards the middle of the week, closer to the betrayal of Judas, And it seems like he's doing that to contrast the statement made by Judas in this story versus what Judas did to prove his betrayal later. Either way, this story happens in the final week of Jesus' life. So let's look at Mark 14, 3 at first. It says, And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So the first stop in our study today, number one, we see a display of opulence. Now, if you know me, I love that word, just great vocab words I love, a display of opulence. So we have our setting, we have some of the characters. They're in Bethany, which is just a little bedroom community outside of Jerusalem. It's close by. Uh, This is the place where Lazarus was raised. 
Mark tells us that it's in the home of Simon the leper. Now, if you're trying to figure out who that is, don't waste your time. He's not in the Bible anywhere else but right here. This is it. We don't know who that is. Um, John's gospel paints this like a celebration dinner, which would make sense if someone was just resurrected from the dead. You might want to throw a little celebration in a case like that. Um, because this is, we see post-resurrected Lazarus is there in, in the room, as well as Mary and Martha. And John gives the names. Mark doesn't give the names. So if you think, where am I getting these names from? John gives the names. Okay. So also, um, we know that this Mary mentioned in John's gospel is the Mary of Mary and Martha. So there's three Marys in the, in the gospels. Don't get confused. One is Jesus's mom. The other is Mary Magdalene, and this is Mary of Mary, Martha, Lazarus family. Okay, so this is that Mary, Mary, Martha, Mary. I feel like I need to sing, take the shackles off my feet. I've said Mary, Mary so many times. Okay, verse 3 says that Jesus was reclining at the table. Now, that doesn't mean he was laying on the table, sprawled out. He's reclining. This, this is how they ate in these cultures. They would sort of lay over on their side, all right? Put your culture aside and think about this is what they did. They would sort of lean on the elbow and eat reclined at the table. This is what the Jews did. The table was maybe only a foot or two off the ground, and they would lay down. And that's what made the foot washing thing so important because you're all laying down sort of diagonal to each other. You know, you got someone's foot in your face while you're trying to eat dinner. That thing better be smelling right, all right? So... At this moment at the dinner table, Mary comes out with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. If you're looking for a tongue twister, say that 10 times today. Alabaster is most commonly thought of as a white mineral. It's easy to carve and shape, which makes it popular for cups and figurines and novelty statues. And so this alabaster jar was likely a flask with sort of a wide bottom a very thin top, and no handles. So maybe think of like a fancy olive oil container made out of alabaster, okay? So it would, uh, it would have contained nard, which other than being kind of a funny word, was an aromatic oil extracted from a rare root found in India, okay? So that's why this was so expensive. This plant is a part of the honeysuckle family. You needed to know that. And this was an extracted scent for many expensive oils and perfumes. Sometimes so strong it was used in burial spices and smells and things like that. So Mark records that this is pure, not mixed with anything else to water it down. So this is like straight vanilla extract, right? It's the pure stuff, really strong. So Mary comes up with this alabaster jar full of oil. And she doesn't dab a little bit. Right? She doesn't do what we normally do, you know, take, put it on the test strip, spray, spray, you know, kind of do that then. She doesn't do the behind the ears. Who needs perfume? Who, why do we do this? You know, anyway, she doesn't do this whole thing, the charade. No, verse 3 says she breaks the bottle, likely the top of the bottle. She breaks it off. And the only reason you would do that is if you had no intention of sealing it up again. So she's going to pour out this whole thing, which is exactly what says she did. Now, we know from the next few verses that Jesus' disciples were there. We don't know that in verse 3, but the next verses say they were there in the room. So the house is probably packed, okay? Every person in that house, I promise you, when she brought that bottle out, 
their eyes got wide. It would be like if someone had, you know, like the world's most expensive, like, champagne bottle, you know, and they kept it in the back or, you know, and they decided to bring it out and everyone's just like, is it time? There's the bottle. Like it, everyone's eyes would immediately open wide when she brought that out. And they're probably thinking, she's not gonna, she's not gonna use it now. Is she the fine china? You're getting out grandma's china? Like she's ready to use it. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this bottle was worth more than 300 days wages. So imagine a bottle of anything in your house that cost just under a year's salary for you. Okay, that's an expensive bottle of anything for you. So picture the scene. Jesus comes over for dinner. You're there. You see Mary grab the bottle. She's got the bottle. And she goes over to the edge of the counter. Now, I made up this part. I don't know what she did. But I've got this scene in my mind of like when they send off the big ship with the champagne bottle, you know, and they break it on the edge. I, that probably didn't happen. I also think of the, uh, the saber, you know, where you chop the top. Again, that did not happen. But I'm just thinking, she comes over here. Maybe there was some ceremony to it. Maybe not. But she breaks the top off of this alabaster bottle. And she completely goes over to Jesus and empties all of it. Every second that bottle is pouring, especially if you're if you're a money-conscious person, we got Dave Ramsey starting today, all right? If you're money-conscious, you're thinking 10000 20000 30000 Every drop that pours from that bottle. This is what you would call an opulent display. The word opulent means lavish, luxurious, extravagant, done for the sake of the size of the gesture. It's meant to be over the top. And it... This story might strike us as strange, given the kind of life that Christ lived. From what we studied in Mark, he's not wealthy, and he never has been. His family wasn't. He didn't hang out with the wealthy people. When he was, he was fighting with them. But he wasn't palling around with the top fat cats of society. Jesus looked nothing like the megachurch TV preachers that might come to your mind looking at you, Creflo Dollar. If you ever follow a preacher whose last name is Dollar, that's on you. Let me just tell you that, all right? Uh, private jets, tailored suits, Rolexes, and Yeezy sneakers. Preachers of Instagram, they got all sorts of following that stuff. He wasn't doing any of that. And we're left thinking, what's gonna happen? How is this going to go over? Will Mary be chastised or celebrated for this opulent display of her affection for Jesus. Well, that's the whole story, isn't it? That's the whole thing. Well, let's read. Verse 4 gives us another piece. There were some, there's always some, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they, what does your say? Scolded her. They scolded her. So, number two in our outline today, we see a disapproving objection. A disapproving objection. So the vibe in the room, other than Jesus, who we don't have his part yet, the vibe is not supportive of what Mary did. It seems like when we look at John's gospel, 
This is where you get a lot of your color in the story. You look at John 12, 4, it records that that voice that rang out, why was this not sold, was who? Judas, okay? And if you like to read some good, old-fashioned, tea-spilling, apostolic shade-throwing, in John 12, 6, John writes, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Boy, John just spilt the tea, didn't he? He threw it out there. John says, I knew Judas had them sticky fingers. We all kind of thought he did. And that makes the comment made by Judas all the richer, all the more ironic, that Judas would simultaneously shame Mary over something done in complete sincerity while being completely disingenuous about his care for the poor while he pilfered the travel expense bag. Mark's gospel really captures the anger from the disciples. Verse 4 says they're indignant. That's really angry. They're asking questions out loud probably. Why was the ointment wasted like that? This could have been sold, given to the poor. 300 denarii we could have got for that at the market. Now a denarii, like we said, that's a day's wage, a common unit of measure. So that was worth 300 days of work. And then the very last phrase of verse 5, they scolded her. I wonder what that was like, what that was like in that room. A group of men shaming and scolding a woman. Just a bad look, guys. Just a bad look overall. Don't participate in that. Questioning her motives, making her feel like she doesn't care about the poor, like she's a spiritual moron. You fool, what did you do with this for? You don't know anything. I mean, we don't know what they said, but it probably sounded like that. Making her feel like she's just lower than them, that they would have done it right. Now, Jesus will respond to this, but that's point three. So let's sit in this for a moment. What I want to do is make two quick assertions in, in light of what we just read. If you look back at what was said to Mary, there's a word in verse 4. You know, I often talk about the lightning that strikes me when I, when I prepare sermons that kind of sets the tone. Here it is. It's that word wasted. Wasted. Why was the ointment wasted like that, they said. Let's ask a good question here. What determines whether or not something is wasted? What, what I think the answer is is, what it's used on, or what it's used for, right? That would determine whether you wasted something. If you need an EpiPen, or an inhaler, or an AED because your heart stopped, even if it's expensive, no one would say that to use it is to waste it, right? That's not what we mean. No one would say that just because insulin is expensive, that that money could have been used for the poor, we wouldn't say that, right? We would say that it should be used for what it was made to do. She didn't just pour the perfume on the ground outside. She didn't just walk outside and look at him in the eye and, you know, kind of shake her head while she did that. She poured it where? On Jesus. She anointed him. She was worshiping him with a sizable offering. He was the object of the worship. And her offering. We often think about a parable of the widow that gave her two mites. Remember that story? Pharisees laughed at her small offering. Ha ha ha! Look at your little two coin, your little two cent offering. Then they laughed big. 
What was the point of that parable when Jesus told it? Jesus said that her offering was actually greater than their offering because it's all she had and she gave sacrificially with a pure heart. Well, Mary had the ointment. It's what she had, right? Did she give sacrificially with a pure heart? Was Jesus not worth that offering? In fact, could anyone name a better use for a bottle such as that? We can wait. A better use than pouring it on Jesus? I don't think so. No, the parable of the widow with the two mites, it doesn't seek to indicate that God only wants small offerings. That's not the point of the parable. But rather, the heart behind the offering is significant. The idea that just because something is expensive, that it must be a waste to God is not true. Here we go. I got a good one for you. Do you know what costs a lot of money to build? The temple. Solomon's temple cost a lot of money. And who told him to make it? God did. There was fine cedar wood from the trees of Lebanon, imported and cut by craftsmen. Wall art carved in the shapes of flowers and pomegranates. The sanctuary overlaid in pure gold, covered with gold chains. Cherubim were carved from olive wood, overlaid with gold. The floors were overlaid with gold. The doors made of cypress and carved with etchings of palm trees. And the large stones for the outer walls were cut miles away and hauled in, pre-cut, so as not to create noise near the temple mount. Guess what? That's expensive to do. Was God wrong to ask Solomon to build such a temple for all that money? Because after all, that money could have been spent on the poor. Absolutely not. And Mary understood this principle. No gift is too costly for Jesus. The wise men understood this gift, didn't they? When they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Nicodemus understood this when he provided burial spices for Jesus' body, giving the amount of myrrh that would have only been appropriate for a royal wedding at 75 pounds of spices. Missionaries and martyrs understand this when they give the offering of their life in service to taking the gospel to the unreached places of the world. No gift is too costly for Jesus. See, you thought this was a tithing sermon. It's not. It's about your life. Nothing done for Jesus or given to Jesus, whether big or small, can ever rightly be called a waste. So Judas and any other disciples who said or thought this were just plain wrong. Not every critic is valid. Not every time someone says something to you in a little yippy tone doesn't mean that they are correct. They were a discouragement to a godly woman. You know, I want to say another thing about this that perhaps will be broad enough for God to use in your life. Here's some wisdom. There's always a reason not to do something that you feel God led you to do. There's always a reason. Mary felt compelled to use this extremely expensive perfume for Jesus, and she did. But as soon as she did, there were critics ready to pounce and supply a reason of why she was wrong. 
Should have spent it on the poor, they said. But here's the thing. Mary didn't feel called to use it that way. She felt called to break the jar and use it for Jesus. There will always be critics in this world. There will always be those who try to second guess and nitpick you when you are sincerely trying to do something for Jesus or when you're trying to step out of your comfort zone to try something you've not tried before, something new and different. There will always be critics. And I can't prove this, but I bet when Mary picked up that bottle, she could probably hear the voices in her head. She knew they were going to say something as soon as she walked through the kitchen with that bottle in her hand. But she did it anyway because it wasn't for them. It wasn't for them. It was for Jesus. Anytime you prepare to take a bold step for Christ, be prepared to be criticized because this is a tactic of Satan to shame you into going back into your comfort zone. There's always a reason not to do something God has called you to do. But none of those reasons matter. The Psalms call those mockers and scoffers not to be listened to. If God has called you to do something, don't let anyone keep you from doing it. So this portion of the story concludes with the disciples scolding Mary, giving her a hard time, making her feel like she did a foolish thing. The real question was and always is, what does Jesus think about this? Mary wanted to do it. The critics didn't. We're about to get the answer. Read Mark 14, 6 through 9. But Jesus said, love it, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And guess what? That's fulfilled right now because we're talking about it, aren't we? Sweet, sweet vindication. Huh? Can you imagine Mary in that moment? When somebody else sticks up for you, it feels good, doesn't it? You just kind of stick your chest out a little bit. That's right. <sighs> Jesus said it was beautiful. That's right. <laughs> so we're ready for point number three. There's some teaching attached to this, as Jesus often does. Number three, we get a discourse on offerings. A discourse on offerings. And again, I remind you, this is not primarily about money, though it can be. Fundamentally, this was an offering. It was an act of worship. It was a presentation that meant something deeper than what was happening on the surface after Jesus defends Mary, by the way, a countercultural moment in that culture, he stood up to a room full of men to defend a woman that would not have easily occurred. He describes her gesture with a word at the end. What is that word? This is beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing. Now, common sense would tell us he isn't describing the way in which she poured, right? It's not like when you go to Dairy Queen. You get the blizzard and they stick it out to you and you're just like, whoa, and you know, what am I supposed to do with that? It's such a weird moment. Uh, so <laughs> I never know how to respond. Woo! <laughs> uh, anyway, no, he was saying the act of what she had done, the motivation behind what she had done 
was beautiful. We don't, I think, we worship and we pray this a lot, which is good. This is a good prayer. May this service, Lord, may this song, Lord, may this message be pleasing to you. May it honor you, right? That's what we want out of this. Imagine hearing the voice from heaven come back and say, hey, band, that song was beautiful. Thank you. After the sermon, clouds part. Hey, pastor, beautiful sermon. Or you, when you serve someone in your life, to hear that voice, beautiful. You were my hands and feet today. Thank you. Imagine hearing that. That's what Mary got to hear. Church, that should be the root goal of everything we do. That Jesus would be honored in the offering of our lives. And notice that Judas used a very interesting word. Jesus said, this is beautiful. What did Judas say? This is wasted. This is a waste. The world may look at your life and think, what a waste. But all that matters is what Jesus thinks about you. Hear that. Hear that, kids. If Jesus thinks that your life is beautiful, that's all that really matters. Now in verse 7, Jesus says something very profound. He says, you always have the poor with you. You do not always have me. Remember, the charge from Judas was this should go to the poor. Well, Jesus puts things in perspective. And listen, this, is, this can be misinterpreted. This is not to say there is no place for ministry to the poor. That is not the point of this statement. It's a statement on the value of time and priorities. Here's the reality. They had less than a week with Jesus, and he was going to die. Less than a week. Mary had one chance to anoint Jesus, and then that window for that kind of worship would be closed, gone. Sure, he would resurrect, and you'd get 40 more days, kind of, but he was all over the place doing things in those 40 days. And even after that, after 40, day 41, he's gone, ascended back into heaven to be with the Father. The window to give a tangible offering to in the flesh Jesus had a time limit. His life, 30-some years, his ministry, active ministry, three and some years, and that's it. The window was closed. By contrast, Jesus says, there's always going to be opportunities to minister to the poor. Not, not that you shouldn't do it, but that you, those opportunities are going to persist over time. There will always be poor. There will always be needs. There will always be problems to fix. There will always be hurting homeless people, sick people. That's going to keep going until he comes back. Jesus says, but I'm only here for a few more days. A few more days. You know, there are things in life that are more important than others based solely on the aspect of the time available to do them. If you're a parent, you know that your time with your kids is a series of opening and closing windows, isn't it? I saw somewhere, it made me choke up, I'm not going to lie, I'll try not to here. I saw somewhere a quote that said something like this, there will come a day when you pick up and hold your child and when you set them down, that will be the last time that you ever held them again. 
I'd say that makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, intellectually, you know. I mean, I know I'm not going to hold my 16-year-old son, right, in my arms, and we're going to go outside, and we're going to look at the trucks and go by and say, truck, you know, what color? Blue truck. I, we do that now. I know that there's going to come a day when we don't do that anymore, and I'll, I might cry. It's okay. I know there'll come a day when we don't get to do that stuff anymore, but they're not little forever, and you know that intellectually, you know that's going to end, but it's good to stop in those moments and appreciate the gift of time that you have then because that window does close. I think it's extremely healthy to look at your life and ask, this is a good one, what is something that I can do today that I will not be able to do later? That's a deep question for you to think about. What's a window that is open now that will close later? There's a classic song that I listened to yesterday. Most of you know it, I think, especially if you're a child of the 70s or or so. But anyway, I know the song. The Cat's in the Cradle. You heard that song by Harry Chapin? A song about a father and son. If you haven't cried to that song, I need to check your pulse, okay? I'm just telling you. The father in the story is singing the song. He has a young son. He's so busy with work, he misses out on his son's childhood. It goes, there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before you knew it. And as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, dad. I know I'm going to be like you. The song goes on, verse two. Every verse gets a little sadder, by the way. Verse two, he doesn't make time to play ball with his son at age 10, but his son still wants to be like dad. Verse three comes, he's in college He comes home, dad wants to spend some time with him this time. I'd like to spend some time with you, son. The son just wants to borrow the the car keys and leave the house. Well, verse 4 comes. Dad sings, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, "I'd I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure nice talking to you. Then it ends with this. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. You see, the whole kicker of that song is that when the son's priority was time, dad's priority was work. And when dad's priority was time, son's priority was work. They never matched their priorities with the open window. Time spent with children, parents, aging grandparents, other family members is a window that opens and closes. And we ought to avail ourselves of those times. But listen, even greater, even greater, even greater is the window that is open to people being saved. Just as Mary had a limited and time-sensitive window to worship Jesus in the flesh before his death, we have a limited and time-sensitive window to tell others how to worship Jesus before he returns. There will come a time, listen, when the mission of Christ will end. It will end. The final person 
will be saved. You know, there's person one when the pandemic starts, patient number one. Well, guess what? At some point in this enterprise of the gospel, there will be patient 12,576,486,512. And that'll be it. And there's not another one. The opportunity for grace and mercy and faith will end. The Great Commission will be completed in so far as God is pleased with it. The number of his sheep will be accounted for and in the pen. The last unreached people group will have been reached. And then it's over. The window closes. And then it's the judgment. Jesus said to the disciples, you will not always have me. What he meant was in person. Because remember in the Great Commission, he said, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He meant in flesh, my 30-some years of that, that version of me, you will not have forever. But I can say to you in a similar vein today, you will not always have an opportunity to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. That is a time-sensitive window that is open now. And it will not be open forever. Jesus said to the disciples there in the room with Mary, whether she knew it or not, she has anointed this body for burial. She foreshadowed his death. She took advantage of the time that she had. She offered something very costly. She didn't care what others thought about her. And Jesus praised her deed as beautiful. I'm reminded of our salvation in this text. In order to be saved, we must offer Jesus the most costly thing we have. And no, it's not perfume. It is our lives. We must die to ourselves. We must give away whatever worldly plans that we have for ourselves and go all in. We have to break the bottle and pour it all out for him. We can't be concerned about what dissenters and critics say when we follow Jesus because we are just trying to please him. We can't care when Judas, who had his fingers in the money bag anyway, says that you're wasting your life by giving everything to Jesus. All that matters is what Jesus thinks. All that matters is what Jesus thinks. And the most of all, we are reminded that the window is open and we need to act soon. We always think there's more time. Man, that can apply to a lot of things. We always think there's more time, but the window is open. The grace of God is available to anyone who would call upon his name to be saved. I think we learn much from Mary, a life lived with the mindset to pour it out for Jesus, to waste nothing, to leave nothing in the bottle, to live for the most pressing priority now, to pour it all out for him. And I think we learn even more from Jesus, who in just a few days after this story, poured out the whole bottle of his life for sinners just like you and me. Pray with me.